Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Hello. How lovely and incredibly timely to be welcoming you to this webinar and podcast on the future of Iraq. It's a country that's barely been out of the international headlines for decades, but this conversation really is so pertinent today. The Prime Minister is safe after surviving an assassination attempt, but tensions are still high after last month's general election that is still being disputed by many militia groups. So it's clear there's a shifting political landscape in Iraq. On one hand, we're seeing strong and active militias in Baghdad, but on the other hand, we're also seeing vocal protest movements that are pushing for democratic rights and good governance. Hello and welcome. I'm Penny Richards. I'm the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK, and we really enjoy bringing, using Aspen Institute's wonderful convening power to invite some of the most thoughtful and experienced leaders to discuss the consequence of this extraordinary time across a range of subjects. And today, really is no exception. I mean, this, this, the people in front of me are, are you know, extraordinary to talk about this subject. Chloe Cornish with Ambassador Bryson Richardson, Ali Al, Ali Baroudi, uh, Dr. Choman Hadi and Shayan Talibani will talk for about half an hour. And then we're really keen to take questions from you. Please could you use the Q&A tab and not the chat tab. And we also won't be using the raised hands function today. And talking of Chloe, we are so grateful she could lead this conversation today. She's the Financial Times Middle East correspondent covering Syria, Iraq and Lebanon. Before joining the FT, she was entrenched in Iraqi affairs based both in Baghdad and Erbil with the World Food Programme. And then she covered the country for a number of news agencies. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us. Um, fascinating to listen to this next hour. I'm really looking forward to it. Over to you. Thanks, Penny, for a lovely introduction. Um, I'm delighted to be here with three uh, scholars of Iraq and Iraqi affairs and uh, a new scholar, we hope, of Iraqi affairs, uh, the new British ambassador to Iraq, uh, Mark Bryson Richardson. Um, Ali Al-Baroudi will be familiar to many of you, I'm sure. He's a, an incredibly talented photographer, writer and teacher. He's a university lecturer in English, dialogue and simultaneous interpreting and an NGO volunteer and part-time media consultant. You probably know him best for his work on his hometown of Morstan. He's one of the great chroniclers of that city and I'm delighted that he's here today with us. Uh, Choman Hadi is a poet, scholar and educator. She's known for pioneering work on issues of gender and education in Iraq and beyond. She's the author of critically acclaimed books in the fields of poetry, academia and translation. Really looking forward to hearing some of Chaman's important thoughts on half of the Iraqi population that often gets overlooked. Shayan Talabani is an analyst at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, Extremist, Extremism Policy Unit. Um, she researches uh, international relations and politics of the Middle East. Um, but Shayan has been spending a lot of time thinking about and researching the Tushlin protest movement in Iraq. So we're delighted to have Cheyenne to talk about that. Uh, and finally, Ambassador Mark Bryson Richardson. He is uh, Britain's ambassador to Iraq. Uh, he took up that role in July of this year. And before doing that, Mark was serving as the DFID slash FCDO director for Middle East, North Africa and Eastern Europe from 2019, 2020. So thanks all of you for joining us today. Um, I'm going to send my first question to Ali Al-Baroudi. Um, we're focusing, of course, on the future of Iraq today, but there's no conversation about the future of Iraq that can really start without considering its recent past and that Penny kind of described for us there. So Ali, you're in al Mursid, uh, a city that is trying to recover from really years of atrocities that many of us just cannot imagine. I mean, you and I were chatting earlier today and you compared it uh, to post-World War II Europe. Can you tell us what's happening in Mosul now? Is enough being done to rebuild this city? If we talk about Mosul, we need to talk about things happening right now. 
Uh, first of all, the, the, the role of the people of Mosul and the way they are reviving the city, whether it is in the old town, whether it is on campus. And on the second hand, the, the Iraqi government and the international community role uh, in Mosul. If we talk about individuals and the people of the city, we must talk about the revolution of volunteerism, which started while the, the war was still raging in Western Mosul. It started on campus and off campus and, and it started with receiving the, 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 the IDPs from, from the crushing battle in the, in the old town. On the, on the other hand, if we talk about the role of Baghdad and the Iraqi government role in the, in the city, it would be quite a shame to a city that went out the, the second biggest urban battle after World War II. And the, the international community, there is a kind of, a kind of support role, uh, especially in the, in the vital areas on campus, in the vital areas in the old town. But still, if we ask Baghdad, is it enough what they are doing? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's not enough. What happened needed quite a like a, a Marshall-like plan for the post-ISIS era. The Iraqi government was not ready and was not a planning for a five-year plan, a five-year strategic plan to, to rebuild the city of Mosul. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ali, for explaining that. So if that's the situation today, there's no five-year plan, the Iraqi government hasn't really done enough to rebuild the city. What do you think will be the consequences and reverberations of that in the future? What is happening in Mosul can be simply generalized to other cities of Iraq, which explains a lot about corruption, about bureaucracy, and about the draining or the drainage of, of, of funds and, and billions of budget. Uh, I thought that that Mosul was was neglected for for a kind of reason, and and a lot of people shared this perspective with me. But when I made a photo tour around Iraq, I went to Nasiriya, to the marshes, Basra, and I I started raising questions. Like in in, in Nasiriya, people were furious, and I say, why are the people of Nasiriya furious? They they didn't have ISIS. They their cities were not were not occupied and to explain more about Nasri and other uh, southern Iraqi cities. They are the richest in resources. They did not have any urban war during the last 18 years after 2003. And no terror group. And when I went there, I, I thought that I would see something else. I thought that the stability that these cities enjoyed after 2003 would give them the advantage over the other Iraqi cities. What I found out, they were not a pretty much different from Mosul. In fact, I saw some neighborhoods of Mosul more, more organized, more decently rebuilt than a lot, than a lot of the neighborhoods in Nasiriya or even Basra. These mm -hmm. cities are the richest in resources, the richest in oil. Iraq is living on the oil of those cities. But what about the people of those? Are they taken care of? I'm afraid not. Mm. Ali, thanks for, for that insight. Um, it's, it's kind of great to hear your perspective coming from the north to the south um, and explaining what you saw there. Um, Cheyenne, I'm, I'm going to turn to you now. Ali has very eloquently kind of explained to us, given us real examples of the deep kind of corruption and mismanagement that have dogged the Iraqi state have left the southern cities of Iraq where the oil wealth comes from in this miserable state as well. Um, and of course, over this weekend, we saw a huge kind of attack on state institutions with uh, what the Iraqi military described as an attempted assassination of the prime minister or the outgoing prime minister, Mustafa um, Akademi. So Cheyenne, Looking at that incident over the weekend, um, what does that sort of tell us about the future of Iraq's state institutions and the sovereignty of them? Thank you, Chloe. I mean, I think it's clear that the attack on Iraq's prime minister, uh, or for now at least, prime minister Mustafa al-Qadhimi, 
was a clear violation of Iraq's state institutions. And, you know, Khadami is also the head of Iraq's armed forces by technicality. So it is a clear violation of that. But in the wider context, it just shows the fragility of Iraq and the fragility of Iraq's state institutions. And I think it's quite, I mean, for Iraqis, for Iraqi leaders, and for those looking at it from a, you know, an, a third party perspective, it's clear that this assassination attempt comes at a time when leaders of the various factions, whether Shia, Sunni or Kurdish parties were meeting in Baghdad to discuss the formation of a new government following the recent elections and the possible marginalization of Iran or pro-Iranian or Iran-backed militias in Iraq. You know, the president Barham Salat calls it a attempted coup on the constitutional system. And even on the other side, those who are accused of being the sort of perpetrators of this attack, uh, people like Qais al-Khazali, who is the head of Asaib Ahl al-Haq, one of the paramilitary groups in Iraq, said that this was an attempt to shuffle the cards. So there is a clear indication here that the recent attack was an attempt to sway the, the conversations and the negotiations that were being had in order to form this new government. But what it says about Iraq's sovereignty and the sovereignty of its state institutions, I think it's really important to counter the sort of myth that Iraq's institutions are completely at the mercy of its regional or more powerful neighbors. I think, you know, neighbors such as Iran have a very impactful uh, role in Iraq, whether that be formally or informally via soft power or hard power, you know, soft power being education, religious uh, power and influence and media or via hard power with its affiliation, at least from the, you know, in the, at the offset, and um, some would argue differently now, but with those pro-Iranian militias in Iraq. So there's no doubt that Iran is an impactful player, but I think there is an attempt by many who look at this from an analytical lens to sort of say, or to at least to argue for a very clean or sanitized analysis of the recent events and to kind of create these very direct causal links between who may have perpetrated them and what the intention were, was. To sort of counter that, I think, you know, the questions that Iraqis, Iraqi policymakers, and also Western policymakers and those who have an interest like all of us in Iraq from the outside, you know, I'm speaking somewhere outside of Iraq, the questions that everybody needs to ask themselves, but more importantly, internally, is, you know, does, does Iran have a very clear strategy when it comes to Iraq? Does Iraq have a very clear strategy or understanding of what that strategy is? And what does the, you know, what, what do other actors have to say or what role do they play in this? And I think mm -hmm. those are the key questions that need to be asked. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, despite the fact that these geopolitical conversations are very, very important, I think the clear outcome of these attacks, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. It's still very new. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of debate over who's behind this. I think we can't lose sight of the fact that it's the Iraqi people who are, you know, at the center of this conversation or should be at the center of this conversation. And I think this doesn't really address the key issues for them. In fact, I think it adds or supplements to the, to the perceptions of Iraqi people. Right, sure. And of course, we've just had an election um, in Iraq and in which less than 40% of, a, of eligible voters actually went to the polls. And um, just to unpack maybe some of the, the points you made there, Cheyenne, for, for maybe for viewers who, who haven't followed um, you know, events super closely. Um, the power of Iran in Iraq is not solely through its proxy militias that it works with. It has very deep political relationships with a variety of political figures in Iraq, not just the Shia politicians who it's often kind of you know, linked with, but also with, with some Sunni ones and, and with Kurdish politicians also. 
So uh, while the elections which saw uh, a reduction in the number of seats for the most obviously pro-Iran factions within the Iraqi government, uh, within the Iraqi parliament, uh, there was actually uh, an increase in seats for Nuri al-Maliki, the former prime minister, who's a, a strong, has been a kind of strong ally of Iran in Iraq. And so it wasn't a completely uh, one-sided picture um, either in terms of it being a setback for I Iran. So um, I guess what we have also wondered a lot about with regards to Iran's influence in Iraq is the role that it has played in kind of suppressing or encouraging the suppression of the protest movement, the pro-democratic pro rights protest movement that Penny, Penny alluded to um, at the top. Um, Cheyenne, really quickly, if you can, where do you see this protest movement going? I mean, I would, I mean, I think it's really important that, to center the Tashreen movement, the protest movement that came out of the October 2019 movement, which is why we call it Tashreen, to center that in this conversation, because it showed a clear you know, it was a clear indication that post-2003, the post-2003 structure and setup of the institutions and the state of Iraq was just not acceptable for, for young people any, any longer. And it's, it's also very important to say that the outcome of these elections are actually, you, you, you sort of have to look at it from a different framework, I think, and from a different point of view. The outcome is actually that because of this very, very low voter turnout, which in itself is a clear indication that you know, people are very disillusioned with the whole electoral process, they are disillusioned with the prospects of what would come out of a possible election. Um, despite this very low voter turnout, you now have 40 independent candidates uh, you know, who have been elected into the parliament. Uh, many of them who came out of the Imtidad movement, which is the, the, the movement that was basically, that came out of the protests. So these 40 independent candidates, and I will add that 1.7 million people voted for these independent candidates in total, um, are, are representative of a change in, in the way that perhaps Iraqis are, are formulating and trying to showcase their grievances. And I think the challenge now for this movement is to formulate an alliance when they are in parliament and to really kind of create at least the foundations of a possible viable opposition bloc in parliament. Mm -hmm. And really what they need to do is create or at least emphasize what their blueprint is, which is that they support the Iraqi voice, they represent the Iraqi voice. Because I think the other parties, the other more traditional conventional parties in Iraq, they lack that blueprint. You know, they are in a sense not real political parties because they are oftentimes more about individual personalities than they are mm -hmm. about specific ideologies. So mm -hmm. the, you know, the interesting thing is that this movement by many you know, some have said that Tashreen will continue to challenge the establishment despite failing to kind of take control or have capture major levels of power. I think that's the sort of the beauty of it, because what it's managed to do is to push for certain uh, certain actions, one being a, an early election, the other being kind of at least you know, uh, sort of uh, quickening or uh, making those uh, electoral law changes come quickly and come faster. And um, at the same time, they have kind of reshifted or changed the, the priority and also mm. the paradigm for politicians working in the, and, and campaigning in Iraq. I think you right. see that with the Sadrist movement as well, which is the last yeah. thing I will say, which is that Sadr has sort of mastered in a very strategic way, the art of local politics, which is the essence of the Tashreen movement. Right. And the way that he managed to gain so many seats in this last election was not because he was very overtly popular. I mean, in terms of voter count, actually he, you know, mm -hmm. the voter count for both Sadr and the other Shia parties was quite similar. But what he did manage to do was very cohesively um, play and master this art of local politics and also yeah. master the new electoral laws. So and this that's a very good point. That's a great yeah. point, Shai. 
Um, uh, we're going to head over. I'm going to bring Choman in now um, because I'd love to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where women um, come in to this new kind of protest movement and potentially a change in the kind of political consciousness of voters. I mean, Cheyenne just told us something very interesting, which is that 1.7 million Iraqis voted for independent candidates. Now, if you compare that to the number of votes that Muqtada al-Sadr, who got the most seats in parliament was, he got 650,000 votes. So, um, so Choman, can you tell us a bit more about how women play a role in potentially these new and, and different kind of nexuses of power within Iraqi politics? Um, thank you. Let me just start by talking about the Iraqi constitution. According to Article 14, that Iraqis are equal before the law um, and there will be no discrimination based on gender, ethnicity, religion, uh, sect or class. Um, this endorsement is very important for a country like Iraq with a history of ethnic conflict, sectarian conflict, domestic violence, violence against women in general, gender-based violence, but it needs to be reflected in the value system and it cannot be staying abstract in the abstract sense in the constitution. It needs to be reflected in the education system and it also has to be consistently upheld rather than contradicted when you come to details of the law. Um, we know that sexism and prejudice in general lead to a diminished sense of belonging, they lead to alienation, um, and in some cases, of course, to radicalization and extremism. So it's very important for Iraq to uphold the sense of citizenship because it has always had this issue of identity. Iraqi identity is a fragmented identity. Different governments have tried to construct this unity and this sense of belonging, and many of them have failed so far. So how can we construct um, equal citizenship in particular regarding women um, in Iraq. Uh, we, we've seen that women's rights um, have seen relative progress in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. We've had some amendments um, criminalizing honor killing in 2002, some reforms to the civil status law in 2008, um, including restrictions on polygamy, uh, banning forced marriage, um, right to prohibit polygamy uh, or divorce uh, by the woman, the right to claim the right to divorce and so on. And later, uh, more importantly, in the domestic violence law, combating violence against within the family law in 2011. Um, it has some very radical elements, uh, including uh, a broad conception of violence, which includes uh, physical, sexual and psychological. It even addresses things like um, uh, marital rape, although it's not called that. Uh, abortion through violence, um, women exchanging women for prostitution, even fem female genital mutilation. On the other hand, we have uh, in Iraq, uh, Article 41 of the Penal Code, which uh, provides um, rights, to, it gives men the right to punish their wives um, and also discipline their children within the limits of law and custom. And the issue of custom comes up regularly in Iraqi law. And of course, it's a matter of interpretation. What is Iraqi custom? What's okay by custom? What isn't? And usually many sexist uh, values are okay according to the custom. It also mitigates um, uh, lighter sentences for men uh, who kill women if they can prove it that it was because of reason based on honor-based reasons, honor-based motives. Uh, also perpetrators of rape, if they marry their victims, for example, they will get a reduced sentence or none mm -hmm. at all. We see also in 2017 attempts were made to bring the Jaffari law, uh, which would um, sort of roll back on the protection that already, some of the protection that exists in the Iraqi law currently. And it would include things like allowing girls, nine-year-old girls to be married off. Fortunately, the Women's Rights Committee um, in the parliament, Iraqi parliament managed to push, push back against this one. But so far there has been a lot of um, calling for legislation um, on domestic violence. We, we know the pressure comes from several sides. First of all, we have the anti-violence against women strategy 2013 to 17. We also have the national strategy on advancing women's rights. We also know that Iraq has ratified CEDAW in 1986 and is obliged under international, has obligations under international law to actually come up or ratify a law like that. Mm -hmm. 
the domestic violence law, there's a draft of it. Um, it has been sort of discussed in the parliament in 2019 and 2020. Unfortunately, there's always been a pushback and it has not been accepted. Although key amendments are still required uh, to, to be um, implied, implemented regarding this draft, but it's very important that it's um, approved um, by the parliament soon. Right. Shoman, I'm sure none of us ever knew that much about the women, like how women are legislated for in Iraqi law. So thank you very, very much for that overview. It was really fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm going to turn us to, to Mark now, um, just for the last couple of minutes before I hand, uh, before I start bringing in audience questions. Thank you all very much for the questions that you've brought up so far. Um, Mark, we've kind of been talking a lot about um, security, social politics and, uh, and politics at large, the rebuilding of Iraq after ISIS, that kind of thing. Um, but of course, all of this is underpinned by the country's economy which is run on its oil revenues, about 90% of, uh, of Iraq's budgets rely on oil revenues. And the public sector has become more or less Iraq's biggest employer. It's, a, it's an enormous, enormous body. So the government under Mustafa al-Qadimi uh, has tried to uh, suggest some reforms uh, and, and put some economic reforms in place. How do you see the progress on these economic reforms? They're, they're really badly needed to get spending under, under control. Um, is any progress being made? Thanks, Chloe. Uh, so I, I think some progress has been made, but I'll, I'll just start by building on what you said about the scale of the challenge. As you said, 90% of the revenue is from oil and gas, 95% of Iraq's exports are oil and gas. Um, Iraq needs around 70 to $80 as the price per barrel to balance its budget. Uh, and at the same time, we know that that trajectory isn't positive. So we know that by 2050, 75% of global demand for oil uh, will have disappeared. Uh, and we can predict uh, not when, but that that price of oil is going to start coming down uh, pretty drastically. At the same time, uh, the government's budget is spent around 90% on recurring costs, salaries really, uh, being a really big part of that. And the element of the budget that goes to investment is small, uh, often the bit that gets cut or isn't implemented. And that's really key because that's the bit that is used and needed to drive growth, uh, create conditions for the private sector uh, and the broader situation. And as we think about the future of Iraq, those challenges are going to be really compounded. Uh, we see population growth of around one and a quarter million people a year in Iraq. The population will double by 2050. So the private sector needs to create 200 to 300,000 jobs a year just to maintain the current rate of employment uh, rather than to um, uh, improve it. And that's a challenge for any economy anywhere in the world to create jobs at that scale. So there is a big challenge in front of it. What this government has done, to come to your point, I mean, it, it set out a pretty clear vision in the white paper. Um, that is a very impressive assessment of those challenges and a frank assessment of them and an assessment of what needs to be done uh, to act against those challenges. Where it has faced more difficulties is implementing the reforms set out in there. So it has made, uh, I would say, a really big step and an important step with the revaluing of the currency. Uh, it has made some steps in terms of uh, salary reform and public sector salaries. Uh, but frankly, it has a long way to go to address some of those challenges. And they will be really difficult for a new government to pick up and engage on those challenges because in the short term, uh, it will be bumpy and it will cause pain uh, for mm -hmm. Iraqis uh, to go through that process. Um, but it is going to be an essential process if Iraq is going to be able to look at its economy, look at its revenue streams in the sort of medium to long term and have mm -hmm. something that will support its population, support their aspirations uh, and what they're hoping to see. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks, Mark, for running us through what's a very complicated uh, subject. Um, we are exactly half past the hour, so I'd like to turn us now to questions from the audience. Thank you all very much for your questions. Please keep them coming. Um, so uh, this question, I'd like, to, I'd like to direct to Ali, please. Um, Will asks about the perception of democracy in Iraq and whether or not the latest elections have contributed to a positive perception of democracy in Iraq. I mean, Ali, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's heard plenty of people in Iraq um, say they felt things were better when Saddam was in power 
um, which is probably one of the saddest things that you can hear when you're in a row, especially if you're British. Um, do you do you feel like this latest election can help to change people's idea of whether or not democracy can deliver for them? As long as you you, you mentioned Saddam Hussein, I would like to share something that we used to say under Saddam, and then we made it kind of funny comparison after 2003. Under Saddam, Iraqis used to, to say that we spoke against the region. After 2003, shout at the top of your voice, nothing is going to change. As far as democracy and action is concerned, even if the process is 100% accurate and 100% clean, who is taking the lead? The guy with the gun is the one to run the show. What is democracy going to do? It's like democracy against drones or democracy against guns. Who is going to win? Mm. Mm. And it's a great point, especially given what we saw over the weekend, eh? Whereas Cheyenne rightly pointed out, all of the context that we have here is a big negotiation over who's going to get to be in the government. And part of that set of factions are armed factions who also want to be in the government. And that's partially why they're suspected of being involved in the attempted assassination of the prime minister. Thanks, Ali. Great, great answer. Um, Okay, so Angela has a question about Iran. Um, So I think I'm going to put this to you, Cheyenne, as I think it fits into the sort of security uh, geostrategic bucket although I should have put it to Mark, really, to make him uncomfortable. But um, does has Trump's maximum pressure campaign on Iran made any difference to Iraq and to the militias which are backed by Iran in Iraq? I think, um, I mean, I, I probably um, would redirect the question to Mark, to be honest, Chloe, because I, look, I'm not an Iran analyst, but of course, Iran's role in Iraq can't be you know, you, it can't be understated. We made this clear earlier. Um, whether or not like the particular Trump maximum pressure campaign on Iran uh, had a positive bearing on Iraq or not, um, I think if you ask people on the streets of Iraq, the, the, the main priority for them is, yes, we don't want Iranian involvement in Iraq, but actually the major issue that they have is with Iraqi political leaders and the wider system in Iraq and the the structure that's set in place. So I'm not going to particularly comment because that's not my area of expertise. I think there is a causal, uh, there is, you know, a, a, a relationship that can't be understated between Iran and the militias that operate in Iraq. But I think it's too simplistic to make like direct causal links. And, and to, to, I think that would be a bit reductionist. And it's probably the hope of many people to make those direct causal links because it would make policymaking for them a lot easier. But I don't think that's the, the reality of it. And I think it's far more complex than that. Okay, thanks. Thanks for a very nuanced kind of response to that. Um, uh, okay, I'm gonna slightly change the question um, uh, and, and send it towards Mark. Um, Mark, to what extent do you think that the US policy of maximum pressure on Iraq served to further destabilize, uh, sorry, the maximum pressure on Iran served to further destabilize Iraq? I'm gonna say the same as Cheyenne. Uh, I I wouldn't simplify it down to that one element. What I would say is clearly what the recent events have demonstrated uh, in Iraq is that the region really matters. Uh, Iran is, is a really big part of that. Iran's relationship to political actors, security actors in Iraq is a really big part of that. But frankly, as we've seen over the last uh, 18 months in particular, so does Iraq's relationship to its uh, Arab neighbors, uh, so does its relationships to the border region. And uh, all of those actors and players need to be playing a constructive role in Iraq if Iraq is going to move forward. Uh, that's why on Iran, you know, we've been advocating for a turn for Jokpara. Uh, we shall see how that plays out. We've all seen uh, the discussions and commentary on that over the last few days. That and a conversation about Iran uh, and the region is a crucial step for everybody uh, because the region is interconnected. It should be interconnected. 
uh, Cheyenne spoke at the start about the close relationship uh, between Iraq and Iran, whether it's cultural, religious, uh, economic, trade, the same applies to other neighbours, uh, whether that's Turkey, whether that's Saudi Arabia, Jordan, etc. This is all together in one place. And you know, without focusing on the past, I think if we focus on the future to answer your question, uh, you know, that needs a return to Jack Power, it needs a regional understanding about how everyone uh, engages with each other and fits together in the region in a way that fully respects Iraq, its sovereignty, its ability to set its agenda, but which everyone is clear on the relationship between those actors. Um, if I can clear what I've got, could I also just pick up briefly on the question you put to Ali about the democratic process? I mean, uh, two things that really just leap out at me about Iraq, uh, perhaps as a newcomer. But firstly, you know, we see the challenges now in terms of contesting these results, but this is the fifth democratic election in Iraq following a major conflict. Uh, that sort of track record is frankly unprecedented for countries coming out of the conflict uh, that Iraq witnessed. Uh, and that's not to say there aren't remarkable challenges with it, but if you look at other countries emerging out of conflict, uh, that is a positive trajectory. And, and I think there's a really interesting, hopefully positive point in terms of, of these elections and the lessons people take away. Uh, there was a low turnout to the elections, and that's a really big challenge for the new government when it comes in to think about how it engages and mobilizes people, and frankly, for the traditional parties to think about. But I think some people who doubted the democratic process, who are concerned about whether their vote matters, will look at those 1.7 million votes that Cheyenne referenced, will look at how New Generation did uh, in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, will look at how Imdad did, and conclude that actually their vote on the day did count and did make a difference. And if that carries through to the next elections, that for me is a very, very positive message that I think will have taken quite a lot of people by surprise who are sceptical about what that would mean. Thanks. I'm, I'm, uh, it's lovely always to hear a positive message, Mark. Um, uh, I just wanna maybe bring some up some of the things that people said when I was in uh, Baghdad recently uh, doing some reporting. And although you can vote, in the elections and your vote could have mattered. All of the power struggles that are going on now happen completely behind closed doors without your participation as a voter. And nor does your vote really weigh as much as, as a gun, as Ali pointed out earlier. So the, the negotiations right now, they, they are about parliamentary seats, who gets to control ministries and who's gonna use their military heft to basically force the issue. And a lot of people said to me and at all, I don't think this is a democracy. This doesn't seem like a democracy to me, right? So while on the one hand, while the kind of technical success of the elections did take a lot of people by surprise because it was considered to really have been the best run elections that Iraq has had. At the same time, everything that's happened since the elections has served, I think, to reinforce the general like feeling that this still isn't really a democracy. Please, someone can debate just, me on that. Um, can I just, um, if I may come in, I mean, I think this is very important to recognize the low turnout reflects the state of giving up by the Iraqi people. I think they have shown their uh, unhappiness. They have shown that they are not happy with the situation, with the corruption, with the nepotism, with the, um, the way power is divided, the way um, citizens are voiceless. But even if I compare it to the Kurdistan regional government, the, the fact that 40 independent members of IMTIDAT, 40 independent members of parliament have been elected, that is still, um, in my view, doesn't really promise much. We had, for example, the change movement in the KRG. Um, they were the voice of reform. They were the critics of the constitution and, uh, you know, the, the government and so on. But when they entered the government, they decided to join the parliament and the government. They became so ineffective. They became part of the corruption, part of the nepotism, part of the problem. And they were very severely punished in this last election and they got no seat in the Iraqi parliament. And I think this is um, this state of hopelessness where you think that demonstrating doesn't make a difference, shouting doesn't make a difference, protesting doesn't make a difference, voting doesn't make a difference, and people are just giving up. And that's a very dangerous place to be for the Iraqi government because there is no buy-in from the larger community. Sure, man, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. 
Um, I, I add to Dr. Choman, who was my former professor, by the way. So I have a lot of admiration for, 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 for Dr. Choman. I just wanted to add to her comments and also sort of say that I think the question is not whether this is an exercise of democracy. I think the question is, is that this election was the beginning, I think, of a way to, or, or an opportunity to question whether parties and those in power in Iraq and political parties in different factions are sort of willing to institutionalize the, the political process. The reason that I say this is because the, the, the Tishreen movement, what it brought about was not only the early elections, but like I said, this quick adoption by the government of the new electoral laws, which by the way, you know, in a sense, like they practically are, are, are a sense of creating more accountability, um, whether that be because it's a single non-transferable vote or whether that be because they've divided now Iraq into smaller districts, which essentially make candidates more accountable to their constituents. And I think what, what's important about all of this is that all the parties are realizing that voters want a clean break from the past. And this is why I was saying about Sadr that he has mastered the art of local politics, but for him, it is a strategic mastering of local politics. And I think if other parties and factions in Iraq also catch up to that strategic you know, play on local politics, though I doubt they will, because a lot of them, for them, it's sort of personal, uh, personal uh, campaigns. Um, that's the sort of danger, but it also shows that the Tashreen movement can have that impact in a sense. So if, you know, they can sort of shift the, the, the framework and they can kind of bring the parties together to accept or at least institutionalize those political processes. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point. Um, great. I'm going to take us to the hot button topic as ever of the United States' involvement in Iraq, because uh, we've got lots of questions about that. And thanks again for, for all your questions. Um, I'm going to try and roll this into sort of one question for the, for the panelists to weigh in on. Um, so we, we've got several people are asking about, um, you know, what is the US's intentions in Iraq? How long is it going to stay? And can the United States deprioritize the Middle East without first stabilizing Iraq? Which I think is a very like, nice way to, to look at it. Um, who would like to weigh in on the question of the US's involvement in, in Iraq and whether or not uh, it can safely kind of say goodbye and, uh, and leave? Any, any takers? Um, I can, I can start by directing this one to Mark as a key ally of the US in Iraq. Thank you, Chloe. I saw that coming. Um, we, we are a key ally. I'm not the US ambassador, but we are a key ally. Um, I, would, uh, I would challenge slightly the premise of the question. I, I don't think the US is trying to leave the Middle East or leave Iraq. Um, I think uh, very understandable that uh, everybody asks those questions, particularly following wider events in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, but you know, I don't think the US is trying to leave. I think it's committed to staying uh, and it's committed to staying both uh, in terms of the coalition and its campaign against Daesh, which is, uh, which is at the request of the Iraqi government, and in terms of its broader relationship uh, with Iraq uh, and the region. So and the Iraqi uh, government you know, asked foreign, foreign troops to leave at one point, uh, Mark. Didn't, wasn't there a parliamentary vote after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani? that uh, asked all foreign troops to leave Iraq? Yes, non-binding parliamentary votes that the government hasn't asked, uh, but the, the parliament did pass a, a resolution on that. Um, and the coalition is here uh, at the request of the government and that, that remains the case. But there's no intention from the US side, there's no intention from our side uh, to reduce our commitment to Iraq, to, to change our engagement uh, or to step away from that. Um, in terms of uh, the border bit of the question, does Iraq need to be sort of stable? Um, I mean, I take that, uh, I think you know, that is part of the reason we're really interested in supporting Iraq and the journey it's on uh, and helping it where we can, because Iraq really matters in the region. Uh, it matters for Iraq, but it matters for its neighbours, it matters for border stability. But that's not a, that's not a prelude to then exiting. Uh, I hope it's the, the basis of a stronger and longer relationship, uh, not the, the basis to then end that relationship. Right. Okay. Um, nice question here about uh, economic diversification in Iraq. 
um, and why maybe it isn't happening. Um, so I think I'm going to direct this one uh, to you, Choman. Um, Sadwar is asking, are there political reasons why Iraq and the Kurdistan region aren't economically diversifying? I.e., are there political costs for ruling elites to diversification? What do you think? Well, there are different routes to this problem. First of all, Iraq is an oil producing country and in most oil producing countries, we have no taxation. There is no, you know, usually, in, especially in the Gulf region and in Iraq, what, what tends to happen is there is so much resources that you pay citizens for, your lo for their loyalty and silence. And this, that's why the public sector is also very large because um, there is no need for Iraqis to do um, the smaller jobs now. You see more and more foreign workers coming from Asia to do the jobs that Iraqis are not willing to do. On the other hand, many Iraqis also complain that there aren't jobs for them to do. So they're not willing to do certain jobs. They're more accepting of you know, sourcing that out to other people. But on the other hand, I think um, the other problem is um, this started basically from the 70s when the Iraq, the Ba'athist government at the time was um, destroying villages, for example, and in order to, um, because these villages were areas that when, you know, government control was very weak and they wanted to sort of shut them down, deporting villages, and they were all farmers, uh, giving them money, salaries, and telling them to sit and not work and, and be looked after. And this mentality of, of doing little work and being paid, and because this, this country is very wealthy and we have money, we all deserve to be paid from the resources of the country. I mean, part of that is, um, is you know, creating this expectation that we have many young students, for example, that when you ask them why they're studying what they're studying, they're thinking, oh, I want to work in the government and I want to have a pension. And they're like 18, 19 years old. So the, the expectation is that the government is our father and they should pay us. They should um, give jobs to all of us and they should pay all of us and they should support all of us. And this um, the, in, in the destruction of the rural economy and farming, you know, in, in, in the past, the Kurdistan region itself, for example, produced agricultural um, outputs for the, for the region, for Iraq itself and, and the South as well. But the, the former Ba'ath government destroyed all of that. So and we are now importing things uh, from Turkey and Iran and other Arab countries and Saudi Arabia. So and it's become more expensive to produce, to bring a new generation of farmers in to, to take on jobs that were one generation of farmers were lost. They either died or they were killed. So there are many reasons. The war contributed to it. The oil economy contributes to it. And this, um, this idea that really started that this expectation of government father paying for all of us and us having to do very little work in return for this. Yeah. And there's also, I guess, the kind of another driving factor to that government hiring uh, problem that the economy has, which is that political parties can use these ministries to award jobs to their followers, which then kind of helps them to get elected and secures their, their base, uh, their base of support. Um, Okay. Also, if I may just add also many of the private sector, like uh, investing in this country, um, usually you would have to make a deal with one of the political parties and they would have a big share of the money that you invest in the business. So unless you have political alliances and connections, it's very difficult to start businesses here. And that's another hindrance for people who don't have those connections or don't want to pay that much money to a political party just, just to be able to function. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th this jobs thing is a really big problem. I mean, last time I was in Iraq, um, someone told me that they had been considering paying $15,000 to secure a government job as a teacher, which they'd already been qualified to do because they had a teaching degree, but they couldn't find a, a government job. And, and that was how they thought they could best secure one. So um, Will has a, wants, to make a, wants to make a point um, which I'll put to, to the panel. Will says, democracy is a very slow process. This is a very important point. There are no silver bullets which fix everything. However, if the narrative is managed correctly now, then the youth could see how, if they vote in large enough numbers, they can change literally everything in Iraq. Um, Ali, would you like to, to maybe, um, uh, maybe reply to that point? Yes, sure. 
well, it's kind of true that democracy is slow, but 18 years is not is not like a short time. Almost two decades, almost one million Iraqi people killed. We went through a lot. And the 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 point that I want to raise here that those people who caused all the sectarian violence, who sold one third of Iraq to ISIS in a couple of days, they are still in charge of the country. They are still in charge, and some of them are even promoted. And one of them is calling for the prime minister of this. Mm. Right. Like, so this is a driving us like, like an empty circle. Like I know that a lot of people who are uh, with us today, they may they may say that I'm I'm kind of dark person or uh, pessimistic, but believe me, this is uh, this is reality. Truman mentioned a very very important point about uh, selling government jobs. Like I have two live examples. One of them back in 2006, uh, a Mussolini. Oh, two, sorry, it was 2000. Yes, 2006, a Mussolini politician. Like he sold government jobs to to new to fresh graduates to vote for him, and almost two weeks before before the latest elections, like Fal Fayyad, he showed up. He said that 30k PMF fighters will be reassigned soon. Mm. Two weeks before the election, what does that mean? Like they, they they have the keys to all to, to to all the vital joints of the of the government and of the cabinet. They are mm -hmm. they, they are controlling everything. They they, they made lethal mistakes. The, the, the 2014 we are by the way, we are still living the aftermath of 2014 and the Muslim liberation battle. Up to mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, the, the dead bodies are still being retrieved from the old town, the Yazidis. 2.7k is the girls are still missing. The RP camps are still there. So all these questions like need to be truly answered. Is the election going to, to bring back to Sinjar or to rebuild the old town of Mosul and the Riverside facade? These are the very vital questions that we have. Yeah. yeah. They need to be answered. Thank you. Yeah. That's um that's a, a very important point and I think Ali reminds me of how sometimes we feel like one thing's going right in Iraq or like one thing's going in the right direction but there's nearly always a few other things <laughs> so it reminds us that these really long deep like the long history of these deep-seated problems which are not entirely caused by Iraq itself some of them were caused by you know a foreign invasion in 2003 that did a great deal of damage to the structure of this country um, uh, it just reminds, like your comments are exactly correct. We can't forget that there are still dead bodies being found in the old city of Mossad. And there are still hundreds of missing men in Al Ambar and stuff. Um, I yeah, just want I to just, pick up. If I just come in, sorry, because yeah. uh, thanks, Ali, for mentioning the Yazidis. I think this is one of the examples that brings home the problematics of uh, of Iraqi law regarding women. Uh, for example, we have um, we ha women don't have the right to abortion, right? So these uh, Yazidi women who were raped by ISIS and were came back pregnant did not have the right to abortion. They had to carry the pregnancy through. Unfortunately, there, there's another law in Iraq which says a baby born to a Muslim father will be Muslim. That meant the children were by law Muslim and not Yazidi, and the Yazidi community did not accept them. The third problem that also legal law and, and women's role was um, Iraqi ID law. You, you cannot get an identity card in the name of your mother. If your father is missing, so if you, if you have a child as a result of rape or unknown fathers who disappear on the woman uh, and so on, you cannot get an identity card for your child. And these children will become uh, without Iraqi ID and many of them end up in orphanages in, in different parts of Iraq. And these women don't have access to their children. So just the case of Yazidi woman brings home three different legal issues that really restrict women's right 
to, um, to not only their own body, abortion, but also the right to having their own children, looking after their own children and being allowed to mother and parent these children. What will happen to these children who end up in orphanages? Some of them will probably end up the cycle of violence, you know, um, radicalization, disillusionment, exclusion. Mm -hmm. But these are things that, that there was a moment that we could have dealt with that. We could have at least changed the law so that, that abortion would be allowed in the case of children born out of, you know, conceived in rape. Or, mm -hmm. you know, the Iraqi ID law, which at the moment several NGOs are working, there's a draft with the Iraqi parliament, which we hope will get a vote on at some stage. Mm -hmm. Jermon, thanks again for, for bringing up a really important point and, and just reminding us how the very fabric of some of this legislation kind of contributes to, as you said, disillusionment from society and disenfranchisement and a whole bunch of things that will probably be problems in the future. Um, it's easy for us to get distracted by only the, the violence of the now and not see the violence within you know, these legal frameworks. Um, Oliver has, uh, has a question. Um, I think this might be our last but one. So Oliver says, as these last elections have isolated politicians who have militias that are close to Iran, as they've lost many seats, can the electoral process be said to be the best way of fighting these militias that are currently degrading the sovereignty of the Iraqi state? Or does the state have to confront these militias head on? So I'm just gonna add one tiny bit to that question, which is many of these militias are in fact part of the state now. So they've been brought into a security apparatus called the Hashta Sherbi, um, and many of them receive salaries for their fighters from the state, which makes and, and they also have political representation uh, and you know, control ministries. So this makes it even harder to disentangle these militias from the state itself. Um, so who would like to take on this question about whether or not elections are the right way to try to isolate and degrade the power of these militias? Um, I'm happy to jump in, Chloe, if, if, if that's okay. Please. Um, and also, I just want, I will add to something that Dr. Choman said earlier as kind of my final, I guess, remarks. But on this question, I think many would say that right now what would what is needed, and I know a lot of people within Iraq are saying this as well, they would say that a strong leader is now needed to lead, you know? So, you know, someone that is a big player or an established player in, in the system or a sadrist, established sadrist as they are the kind of the leading uh, bloc in parliament. And the argument is that the current, the recent prime ministers have been very weak. And this is why we need someone who can kind of face this threat head on. But I think the, the, the major issue is that that is probably not very likely and the likely outcome and the likely scenario is a deal that's going to be sort of cobbled up that will keep fears at bay and kind of maintain the status quo but that will sort of lead to a very dysfunctional and very flawed sort of form of stability in a sense uh, I think these recent events like that have happened over the weekend and, and which has kind of highlighted again the role of the militias, it hasn't necessarily like shifted the calculus in Iraq as dramatic as they have been and as serious as they have been. Um, but again, it, and this is my final point, it does add and supplement the perception of the Iraqi people of foreign, for, of, you know, of different forces, foreign forces, whether they perceive them as foreign, whether they perceive them as internal, um, having this involvement that they in involvement in Iraq that is unwarranted. And I think the key thing here is, is adding to what Dr. Choman said, is that, you know, Iraq's population is very, very young. 60% of the population are under 25. So for me, this doesn't, this doesn't cut out all prospects of hope. Like maybe I'm a bit of an optimist countering Ali's pessimism. Uh, I'm not an optimist on all fronts. I don't, I think there are three very bleak realities. I think one of them is that you will have a lot of young people who will probably be further radicalized in, the light, in light of all of these different factors that we have spoken about today. But I think the other, you know, the, the other group of people is that people who will simply leave, which we see, we now see a huge migration of Iraqis and Kurds from, you know, from the Kurdistan region, which is, is supposed to be the sort of stable, secure part of Iraq, to the south, to from Mosul, from all across, who are fleeing Iraq. And the third group, which is the young people who are who are in Iraq, who have remained in Iraq for now, and who intend to perhaps remain, and they have an increasingly 
globalized outlook and they share at least some values with that globalized, you know, those sort of globalized values with people, with other young people around the world. And I think though these are rooted in very local contexts, this is kind of the, 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 the only optimism that I have in those young people and in that 60% of the population to, to, to challenge those, 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 those huge structural and systemic challenges that we spoke about. Okay, um, Ali, I think you wanna come in. Thank you. Reply to Diane and to the rest of the panelists and uh, the audience. Thank you very much. Uh, like staying in Iraq, a, can, a complicated country like, like Iraq is is uh, is a kind of optimism, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and yes. if I may call myself lucky, uh, that would be for two reasons. Like the first thing is to survive ISIS and the bombing in front of my house, like 20 meters from from the, the, the room that I am in right now. And the second thing is for seeing the, the revitalizing role of the youth and the people of Mosul, the openness that Mosul is witnessing, like Mosul has not witnessed this amount of politicians, the visit, the papal visit, the, 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 the number of ambassadors visiting Mosul from 2017 to 2021, the role of international community and the NGOs and uh, like org international organizations, this kind of openness, like I have, I haven't seen in my life, and I am almost forty and six years old. Uh, so, uh, staying in Iraq is a kind of optimism, and working with the youth is the best thing that I'm witnessing. Thank you, right. Ali. Thank you so much. I think on that note, we should wrap it up with, uh, and I just, just, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to finish working on Iraq soon. And um, I just wanted to add, I think Iraqi people are among the most optimistic people I've ever met, uh, despite everything that's happened. And I'll never quite understand it. Um, and I'll always be impressed. So thank you very much to uh, stellar panelists today. Uh, thanks to Aspen for hosting us. And I think Penny, who is the sort of puppet master behind the Zoom call here, may jump back in uh, at this point. Thank you all so much for listening and for your wonderful questions. I've never been called a puppet master before, but I'm happy to accept the title. What an amazing hour. Really, thank you. We had high expectations. We knew that this panel was going to be extraordinary, but it was a sweeping conversation. Um, you've covered so much from the rights of women to the role of US and Iran oil, democracy, the idea of the government as the father, corruption, disillusionment, I, I can go on. Um, it wasn't as positive as I'd hoped, but it was probably less negative than I feared. So <laughs> probably touching on Chloe's point that a fundamentally optimistic and positive nation. Um, Mark, Ali, Choman, Shine, thank you so much for responding to, to Chloe's and our audience's questions so openly and thoughtfully. And Chloe, thank you so much for steering us through such a, a great, helpful and timely conversation. Thank you.